Hello, hello, and welcome to the first edition of the No Name Podcast, No Name NYC Podcast. Wait, uh, you know what? We should do things right. We got a theme song. Let's play the theme song. Hit the theme song. Hello, and welcome to the first edition of No Name NYC Podcast. My name is Eric Vetter. I am the producer and host of No Name Comedy Variety Shows, New York City's longest-running comedy variety show. We started in 1994, and in our 28 years, some amazing people have passed through our doors. What we want to do with this podcast, we'd like you to get to know some of these people a little bit better, and our focus here is going to be on the very unique experience of being an artist while living in New York City. It's a very unique experience, and there are unique stories connected to that, and you're going to hear some of them. I would go to the school every day, and this school had at least a couple hundred kids in it, faculty and everything, and I would just lie and tell everybody that I was doing stand-up the night before. Like, I would be like, oh, man, it was crazy. Oh, Chris Rock came. Oh, it was, it was nuts. And they'd be like, oh, come you didn't tell us? Oh, I forget. Oh, I forgot. You know, next time, next time, next time. And this went on forever. That voice you just heard was Charles McBee, and he's our first guest. You'll get to meet him in a little bit. But first, a word from our sponsor. Today we are sponsored, our very first sponsor, we're so excited about this, is the historic Astor House Bed and Breakfast. Escape to the historic Astor House bed and breakfast in the tiny and peaceful town of Green Bay, Wisconsin. Your innkeepers, Tom and Linda Stieber, will point you to fun outings and fine restaurants in the area. Additionally, they will provide you every morning with a yummy, fresh, homemade breakfast. Enjoying the fine accommodation to any of their five luxury suites, all of which have a private bath and some of which even have their own jacuzzi. Beat that, huh? For more information and make reservations, go to www.astorhouse.com. That's A-S-T-O-R-H-O-U-S-E.com. Escape to Green Bay today. Our very first guest on our first edition of the podcast is Charles McBee, an old friend of No Names. He's a wonderfully funny stand-up who can be seen regularly at places such as Gotham Comedy Club. He's also the head writer of The God's Honest Truth, Comedy Central show starring Charlemagne the God, which has just been renewed for his second season. He's a very entertaining, very funny, and very thoughtful fellow, and let's go to the interview. You're originally from where? Toledo, Ohio. So how was life there? How was growing up there? Um, It was fine. It's kind of like the Wonder Years. I can describe it from a very nostalgic kind of way with rose-colored glasses, or I can get into the nitty-gritty of just like how the things I've suppressed and, and tried to forget. So if <laughs> I just think about it from a very basic standpoint, it's like, it's great, you know. 
did it vary from day to day? Or are you inclined, uh, depending on the day, to view it one way versus the other? You know, through therapy, <laughs> through therapy, I'm forced to revisit certain things that are, are triggers for me, you know, against my will. But depending on the situation in general, there's certain things that I'm very fond of and certain things that bring back a lot of joy that I miss. But there is definitely other things that I'm kind of glad to be away from and that I don't have to go back and visit that anymore. <laughs> then I think there's a corollary question to that. So you come to a place like New York City, which I'm just going to go out on a limb here, mm -hmm. a little different than the upbringing you had, right? A little different. Like, is it more like, okay, get away from the bad memories that it make you more long for the good stuff? You know what? When I first moved to New York, I was so desperate to get out. And New York is New York. Everyone had desires to, to leave. Like everybody talked about leaving. Everybody thought they were going to leave. A lot of people left and came back. It's kind of like your family. It's like you can talk trash about them all day, but if somebody else says something, we're fighting, right? Like I have a lot of love for my hometown. It's where I grew up. It's where people that I love the most still reside, you know, and there's certain things that it gave me, good or bad, that made me into the person I am today. So I do have a lot of love for it. But at the same time, it's a place where there's not a lot of opportunities. Mm -hmm. It's a place where it's still self-segregated. There's literally white people go to these places, black people go to these places, white people go to these churches, black people go to this. It's very segregated. And like I said, there's a lack of opportunities there. The poverty level is high. We were a very big industrial town. We were the glass capital for a long time, way back in the past. The auto industry is based in Michigan and Ohio. And for a long time, that went away. It's starting to come back now a little, but it went away for a long time. It's one of those classic towns where there's a lot of townies and there's a lot of just kind of like small-minded, innocent place. But then out of those places, there are kids with these huge dreams and huge imaginations and huge aspirations, but are not given necessarily the opportunity to be able to pursue those things. Mm -hmm. And so some try and maybe give up. Some don't even think that they could even aspire to do it because they don't know how. And then you have people like me just so desperate to get out that there was just no other option. Like, mm -hmm. I'd rather die trying than, right, to, right, right. than to stay. That was just kind jump of Jump off thing. the cliff and see if you can fly. It was, I'm going to jump off the cliff. Yeah, and if I crash and burn, so be it. I'll crash and burn anyway if <laughs> I stay here. So I might That's as well it, try. Stay positive. Yeah. Mom and dad, what's the story? Mom, dad, very religious. Very Christian household. Dad is a pastor. Mom is also a minister. So I grew up with two Baptist preachers in the house. Dad worked outside of being a pastor. He worked several jobs. My mom worked several jobs. It's funny that Chris Rock joke is so true. He goes, he lives in a neighborhood with him, Mary J. Blige, and like some other big famous black person and then there's like a white dentist that lives next door uh it's kind of like that but not in the sense that we were famous but in the neighborhood that we lived in like my dad worked several jobs my mom worked several jobs and the guy next door he was like a dentist or something and his wife was like a stay-at-home mom it's like wait what how are we in the same neighborhood but that's kind of the upbringing i came up under was like you work in order to make money Hopefully you get a job with benefits mm -hmm. and then you work that job, even if you hate it for 40 years. 
and then maybe you retire with some pension and if you can just get your kids through college then right, you know right. that's the goal it, it is a type of place by the time you hit high school you already know what the rest of your life is going to be like yes for me it was different because i was just so desperate to get out but for the most part yeah and they tried that with me too where it's like you plan out your future you go to high school you're going to go to this college you're going to get a job and then you'll get married and you'll have kids all by the time you're like 25. And for most people, that's pretty much how it goes down. So both your parents are in the church. Yeah. Uh, how much time are you spending in the church? Growing up, yeah, it was a, 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 lot, a lot. But I, I will say that it doesn't sound as bad as it may sound to others because that's what I knew. So a lot of my friends were friends that I made in church and friends that I made at church camp and stuff like that. And, you know, Black Church is some of the best music you ever want to hear. So, that, and, you know, I'm a musician myself. I've been a drummer since I was 12. So I was always coming up in church bands and church musicians, particularly Black church musicians, some of the best musicians you'll ever hear in your life. They'll be in church Sunday morning, but mm -hmm. Friday and Saturday, they were off playing right, with right. whoever the biggest names are. I grew up under a lot of great music, playing with a lot of great musicians and made, making a lot of friends. And it was cool. I mean, it was a lot of community. I had a lot of friends growing up within that world. A lot of fun times. Uh, the downside of it, I would say, is obviously, you know, now as an adult and, see and seeing things from a different perspective, very limited and narrow-minded in some of the ways that we thought about things. You know, you're indoctrinated by thinking uh, certain things are the way they want you to see them. And it's not until you broaden your horizons, you're like, oh, wait a minute, I got some questions here. What's going on here? Well, that's not right. <laughs> Why, why? And then if you kind of break from that, this community that was your peers and family and this and that and the third, now those same people are starting to look at you different, mm -hmm. which makes you feel kind of ostracized in a bit. It makes you feel ashamed and makes you feel certain ways. So, it's a positive in many ways, but it's a negative in, in other ways. Kind of like a combination of pride and discomfort with where your foundation was in some ways. Yeah, yeah, it's troubling because you're like, especially when you, uh, you know, you move away to a bigger city and you meet new people of different cultures and beliefs and, and races and mm -hmm. sexual orientations, whatever the case might be. Right. And you're like, oh man, I wasn't exposed to all of this. These are some of the amazing people and I'm making friends and these people are people I work with and this, that, right. and the third. And then you, you go, kind of either have a choice of embracing it and expanding your mind or going all John Rocker. Exactly. You either go, okay, if I kind of embrace this am i turning my back on that what i was taught you know you go through that struggle early on and it's like oh but i was taught to believe this so is that wrong am i wrong am i this that and third in school were you treated a certain way because presumably everybody knows you're in church a lot in school it was a little different because um i was kind of an outsider but it didn't really have that much to do with being in church a lot it had a lot to do with the fact that I just didn't fit in with the kids that I went to school with. I was a very sheltered kid by my, you know, my mom was a mom. She's your typical loving, adoring mother, right? Which is like, I couldn't ask for a, a better mom. Like she's the most amazing person in the world. At the same time, I was kind of sheltered as a kid. So by the time I got to school with these juvenile delinquents, I didn't know how to assimilate into 
this atmosphere. So it was a learning curve because I'm just like, hey, we're all, you know, share. And I was just a sweet, nice kid. Why? And these kids, and obviously as an adult, I can rationalize certain things of like, well, these kids didn't have this and didn't have that or didn't, you know, this is why they were acting out. This is why they attacked you in this way or whatever. But as a kid, you're just like, how come nobody, nobody wants to be friends with me? How come I'm not fitting in? How come this, that, and the third? So in school, it was kind of tough for me for a while because the things that I knew I had to do to fit in went against the things that one, I was taught, but also the things that I just didn't want to, like, I didn't want to do certain things to fit it. So it was that, that was a struggle too. But eventually that is kind of where I found my comedy gene because it became a weapon to endure like some of the bullying that I kind of went through. It wasn't until 10th grade where I had known I was funny to me and I knew that, you know what, I could probably say things. I was always taught, your tongue is a weapon, your tongue is a weapon. Mm-hmm. And I was always great with words anyway. I wrote poetry as a kid and short stories and stuff. Yeah. And I was like, I know I can, I feel like I'm funny. And it finally got to a point where I was like, right, they can't like beat me up any worse. They can't say anything any worse than they've already said to me. They can't try to embarrass me any worse than they've tried to embarrass me all these years. So I'm just gonna, fuck it, I'm gonna just like, stick up for myself Mm -hmm. and once Mm -hmm. I started zinging back and embarrassing them in front of the girls in front of their (laughs) peers it was it was off to the races for better and for worse because my grades never were great because I was a depressed kid just trying to find myself me and my pops didn't really get along that much because he was had his own things that he was kind of dealing with and kind of took it out on me uh and but I couldn't process that as a kid so yeah you can you know yeah. you, need, you need that space like oh that's what that was oh that's what oh, of course yeah. I, I understand you're yeah. blah, blah, blah. It's like no I, it's I, just... I, I love my dad to death and it was a very loving relationship but there was stuff that w- wasn't right in terms of the the emotional relationship and I I hit a point where like oh wait now I get it it's like, okay, now we're going to go sw- scroll through the list yeah, yeah. on a daily basis. Okay, so and... when that happened, this is what, what was going on. Wish uh, yeah, I exactly. Yeah. And I'm never sure if he, if he understood what the problems were or if it was like, you know, statute of limitations. You can't do that. You can't bring that up yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, or, or what it was. But, you know, to his credit, he always, like, daily basis or, you know, whenever we were but when I wasn't living home, it's like I heard the actual words "I love you" regularly, and I heard from both my parents. But yeah. that makes a difference. But there, when stuff is off and you figure it out, that's like a yeah, yeah, a crazy moment. It's a it's wild. Yeah, I didn't hear it. I but, don't want right, to say a so, lot or at all when I was a kid, but now as an adult, we say it a lot, and I've learned to accept that. Instead of harboring things, mm-hmm. just like you know what, let me be grateful for the time that we have now, and let's let's just move on from there. One of the things I'm most thankful for about my relationship with my dad is that we worked it out just before he started on that path of yeah, declining yeah. health. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And I can tell that he—I don't want to say regrets. 
I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I can tell that he's had revelations of his own. Mm-hmm. Um, but because we're stubborn men, we haven't necessarily dug deep. That's not in our pedigree to kind of go there. But what's understood is understood. That kind of thing. And I know that. And, he's, and you see the impact and how you interact. Right? Yeah, yeah, totally. And I can see him trying to reach out. And I've learned that I have to be more accepting because there was a point. For me, as a young adult, where I was like, no, now you want to blah, blah, blah. Forget (laughs) that. I don't need you anymore. You know, and it was like, now it's like, you know what? No, like, I I know that I'd be more upset if, God forbid, something happened or whatnot, that we didn't have uh, a better relationship than I would be, you know, the way we are now. So. So yeah, so we're so you say around tenth grade you figured out that for for you and your assessment yeah. you were funny, right? Now you were already a musician through the church. So was was there a point at which you were thinking music might be the way you would go? Oh, totally. In my head, I was a rock star. I was a rapper. I was a famous actor. You know, I had all these things, aspirations. Comedy was actually something that was like last on the list because it was just so foreign to me as far as a profession. I grew up watching comedians, but I didn't know how you became a comedian. I kind of knew how you became an actor. I kind of knew how you became a professional musician, but I had no idea how you became a comedian. So being a musician was like a huge fantasy for me. But the thing was, I couldn't sing and I could kind of tinker on other instruments. And I wrote poetry, but I never really had the guts to try and be a rapper or anything like that. Because Mm -hmm. back then it was just like you had to be hardcore and this, that. And I'm like, well, that's not really what I do. I didn't. This is pre-Kanye West, pre-Drake. You know, I didn't know you could just like kind of be yourself and um, do things from another angle. So, So being a musician was definitely something that I fantasized about. When you started to embrace comedy... Where did the journey take you next? Well, me knowing that I was funny, like in high school, right? it was mostly to get the bullies off of me. Like, I still didn't go, well, I'm going to be a comedian one day. It was it was just a way of life. You know, we'd be in class, we'd be in the lunchroom. It became a defense mechanism, and then it became, oh, I get positive feedback by mm-hmm. doing this, so I'm going to just do it all the time. You know, grades be damned. My grades were terrible. They were terrible before, but they were really terrible after I gained some sense of recognition from being funny. It was just like, now I'm a problem. Before I was just the quiet kid in the corner. Now I'm adding to the disruption. Now I'm getting calls to home from school about said this or said that or whatever. So yeah, but being funny definitely became my identity, which is something that I longed for for a very long time because I had none prior to that. And now I was the funny kid and that that meant the world to me at the time the fact that people knew me as that instead of the weird kid that didn't mm-hmm. fit in or the kid that everybody picked on or, or beat up or whatever the case so you did go to college right uh i did go to college against against my will what I, were you studying oh what was it what was i studying whatever the easiest thing was communications probably mm-hmm. communications and like theater yeah i tried that didn't work <laughs> the communications or college in general? Uh, well, actually, a little of both. I started the communications, transferred to uh, being a theater arts 
uh, major. And after seven years, I came real close and didn't get my degree quite yet. Same, but I but I did finish. But I seven year plan for me too. I did a whole college tour. I'm the oh, proud. Man. I'm a proud sevener. Because I remember that being such a taboo thing. Mind you, these days kids are like college, college. But like back then, it was like you go to college, you finish in four, or otherwise you're a loser. I'm like, I barely made it through high school. What makes you think that I'm college bound? But you were supposed to go come hook or crook. So it was just something that you just did. And so I took whatever school would take me. And what school took it? So there was community college, which they still have. But to my knowledge, community college does not have the same stain on it as it once did. When I was coming up, community college meant oh do you take short bus to school like what do you it was like you might as well not even go but to my luck community colleges back then were really taking a um bite out of the uni- major universities so what the uni- major universities did was they started community colleges of their own under the umbrella of that university. So you could go to the community college of that university while still saying you went to that university, which is right. what I did. With the idea that it's gonna be like a stepladder to there. Correct. So, I, see, I'm not a loser by association, I'm not a loser. Yeah, I didn't have to tell anybody I go to community. I said, oh, I go to the University of, the first one was Toledo, my hometown. I was like, no, I go to University of Toledo. I didn't have to say I go to the whatever the specialized version of that was and then i did the same thing i left there because i was like i just no way i'm gonna do spend another four years here or three years or whatever the case so then i went to the university of cincinnati which i did the same thing i went to the community college subsidiary version of the university of cincinnati but i still got to stay on campus i still got full access to all their stuff and then i realized while i was there i was really just there to be away I wasn't there for an education. I was there to get away. And it was my first time being on my own, my first time being away from my parents, being away from the town. I wasn't going to class. I wasn't, you know, I would only go to certain classes that I liked. I wasn't going to my my core classes. So what were you doing? I was going to the movies. I was going to the movie theater. I would go from 10 a.m. when they open and I would stay the entire day and just watch movies over and over again. You know, it's like you would think like, oh, finally free. I'm going to go. I didn't go crazy. I didn't do I wasn't big on drugs. I didn't. I still to this day, I don't really drink heavily or anything. I really don't like it, to be honest with you. I didn't do anything crazy. Yeah, I went to parties, you know, messed around with some girls, that kind of thing. But it was nothing just insane. Most of the things that I would do was go to the museum, go to theaters and go to see. I just love the arts. Like, that's all I wanted to do was just go and experience art, go to live concerts and all that kind of stuff. But when do you first hit the stage? I don't hit the stage until I moved to New York. The whole time I was in college, I wanted to do comedy, but I was too afraid. I was still shy. I was a painfully shy kid, painfully stage frightened, and just could not imagine standing in front of people and actually talking to people. When do you make that decision to move to New York? So I left, left slash got kicked out of the University of Cincinnati. And then once I came home, that was a low moment for me. As far as... So... It came around time that I was technically supposed to be graduating. Right. 
And I was like, well, this I'm clearly not going to be graduating. Like four years turned into five. And I was like, oh, I got a, one more year. And then it turned into like, before it got to six, I was just like, there's no way I'm going to be, I'm like, I don't have nearly enough credit. And I just, I was just like, I just had to come clean about how far back I was. Uh, Came home, tail between my legs. And I just said, look, obviously school's not cutting it for me. Let me just do my own thing. I just want to move to New York. I didn't know how, I didn't care. I was just like, I'm just move, I'm going to just move away and figure it out. And at the time, remember I said my dad worked like several jobs at a time. My parents worked several jobs at a time. One of his gigs at the time was he was a professor at the Bowling Green State University. And so I remember him going, yeah, you know, you just got to, you know, just do do your thing. Follow your path. You know, do whatever. I was like, oh, wow. He's so, I can't believe it. He said, okay, great. Little by little, he'd be like, hey, just Stop by the university. Uh, I want to introduce you to some people. I was like, oh, okay. He's to introduce me to his colleagues. Yeah, just meet this guy, that guy. Then it turned from that to, you know, I was talking to so-and-so, and they said they might be able to pull some strings to uh, get you some classes at the at the university. It was like, oh, okay, I see, what, <laughs> I see what's going on here. So yeah. it went from my parents strongly wanting me to finish school to, hey, I pulled these strings and, uh, you know, you're going to make me look bad if you don't. So I ended up going to the University of Bowling Green State University and finishing the last, I think it was like two years. I think that was the last two years. And as soon as I was done there, I beelined it to New York. I was on the first thing smoking to New York and that was it. So you hit New York did you have a plan of where to stay and what you were going to do? Yes and no. So this is how thorough my theater department was at the time at Bowling Green. So I'm talking to my one of the professors. He's like, so what do you want to do after you, you graduate or what's your next plan? I was like, I don't know. I want to move to New York. Tell me what to do. I'm thinking in my head, these are the heads of the department. They should know what I should do next. They got connections all over the place, right? Isn't this what people in heads of departments do? And he goes, okay. And he goes over to the wall and he grabs a brochure and he hands it to me. I was like, okay, what well, what is this? What is this where you're you know these people? And it's like, no, I don't know. This thing has been here forever. I, <laughs> <laughs> it's like no he's just trying to move some old flyers and brochures. Yeah. Here. Yeah. It's like nobody actually nobody who graduates from here actually goes off. Yeah. You're the first person that actually ever asked me. It's like what? He goes, I don't know. Give them a call. <laughs> so I and, did. And, and who was that? It was a school that is now known as the New York Conservatory for Dramatic Arts, okay. which if they had that name at the time, I would have felt better. But the <laughs> name that they were yeah. was the School for Film and Television, I'm... which sounds like a name you would make up if you were conning people into going to a right, school right, for film right. and television. All of a sudden, you're, you're Coco in fame. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what name should we call it? I don't know. <laughs> school for film and television. I called them. I said, hey, what do I have to do to go to your school? And they were like, well, you have to audition. I said, okay. And then they were like, we actually can set up an audition for you like next week. Next week. And, you know, I'm in Bowling Green, Ohio. I, I said, you know what? I'll be there. I'll be there. And he said, well, come at this time and this time. And I booked a flight. 
And I remember, and, and to his credit, I remember telling my dad, and I was just like, hey, man, you know, I got this audition to be at the school, and it's next week, and I'm going to go. And he was like, all right, I'll pay for it. He booked a flight. I stayed at the Hotel Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. the crappiest hotel <laughs> in the history of hotels. The outside ambiance is so opulent. And then you get into the rooms, and I was like, what the hell is this? Went and auditioned. I auditioned with Will Smith's. Fresh Prince dad episode that every black guy always auditions with. And then I think I did um, Good Will Hunting. I did Good Will Hunting. I got it right there and there. I was like, all right, we like you. You're in. I was like, okay. They had a dormitory, which is the St. George Hotel in Brooklyn Heights. They said, go see the dormitory. This is where you'll be staying for a year. I went there, talked to the people, saw. And it it was actually pretty eye-opening because I remember... I went to the went there and it was like, hey, when you go out of here, make a right, walk down six blocks and don't stop until you you can't walk anymore. I did that and I ended up on the uh, Brooklyn Promenade in Brooklyn Heights, just Manhattan, just smacking me in the face. Mm-hmm. First time I've ever been to New York. I've never properly seen Manhattan, even though I was staying in Manhattan. I had never seen it. So I'm standing there with Manhattan stand there. I can see the Statue of Liberty. I can see, you know, just Brooklyn Bridge is on my right side. Statue of Liberty is on my left. And in the middle is just Manhattan. I was just like, um, there's no way. I'm, this is where I'm going to live for at least the next few years. From then on, I called my dad. I was like, I got it. He was like, congrats. We'll figure it out. I took out a loan. Had some of the debt I already had from my seven-year college journey. And then my parents packed me up and drove me to New York in our Jeep Cherokee. And yeah, and that was it. We drove 10 hours to New York, and they unloaded me. And I remember taking them. I said, hey, you guys, you got to see this. You got to see this. And I remember taking them after they unpacked to the promenade. And my mom, God bless her, she knew enough to kind of back away and she kind of grabbed my sister and like it was just me and my dad and he was like yeah you got to do it so you're now in the school right yes and once you're in the program are you doing anything other than what's in the program at first no i mean it was full time it was kind of like college all over again but on a way bigger scale because now i'm doing exactly what i wanted to do and it was my entire life I wasn't running from a math class to go do acting. You started with breathing and then movement and then Meisner. And then and I remember distinctly, there's just certain things that will always just be ingrained kind of in my head. I remember there was one class where the school is on 26 and 6. And there's these big windows. And when you would look out the window, you would just see taxis go by. But for a kid from Toledo, Ohio, looking out the window and just Seeing yellow taxi cabs go by, it was like you felt like you were in a movie. Like it was just looking for Judge Hirsch and like yeah, 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 yeah. It's insane. I'm like I'm in an acting class with other actors, and I look out and there's like yellow cabs. One, it was just like so. Yeah, so that's all we did. We had to study our lines. We had to get ready for this, get ready for that. And then it wasn't until the first year was the basics. The second year was on-camera stuff, which is what I really wanted to get into. It was like more on-camera. But they had a elective called stand-up comedy. And I was like, 
that's my end, right? I was like, that's it. Mind you, everybody else was acting. They didn't give a shit about that. There were some kids that might have been interested. But I was like, that's it. So from the year one, I kept begging the director of the program, how do I secure a spot in the stand-up class? I was like, year one, I couldn't even take it to the second year. And I was like, put my name on the list now, right? Mm -hmm. Funny enough, that's not how I got into it initially. How I actually got into it is the year one, I found out that open mics were a thing because we didn't have any of that. I never heard of an open mic. I didn't know what an open mic was. Mm -hmm. I had no idea. And it was literally some lady randomly on the street. Now it's all coming back to me. So because a lot of us were classmates and whatnot, we would go and venture out. And I remember one time we were venturing out and we saw this huge crowd of people. And so of course we're going, what's going on? And it was a bomb threat. You would think we'd be you hear bombing, we'd be like, let me get the hell out of here. No, we were all like, what's going on? Well, uh, <laughs> well they're not telling us to yeah. leave, so maybe. So we watched the robot come out. We watched all this. And while we're there, you know, we're meeting, we're talking to people and talking about stand-up. Out of the group, we all said we wanted to do stand-up. I eventually was the only one that actually eventually do it, but we all said we wanted to do it. And this lady overheard us talking and said, you guys want to do stand-up? There's a open mic at the club over there, blah, blah, blah. That put it in our brain. But at that point, it actually made me more afraid because now all the excuses were taken away. At first, I was like, I don't know how to get into it. So, I, yeah, I do stand up, but I don't know how to do it. Now, it's like, no, you just go and sign a piece of paper. And I was like, and acting was always kind of a safer space because you're giving me lines. I'm acting off of someone. Stand up seemed way more vulnerable, way more transparent. So I would, I would go to the school every day. And this school had at least a couple hundred kids in it, faculty and everything. And I would just lie and tell everybody that I was doing stand up the night before. Like, I would be like, oh, man, it was crazy. Oh, Chris Rock came. Oh, it was, it was nuts. And they'd be like, oh, come you didn't tell us? Oh, I forget. Oh, I forgot. You know, next time, next time, next time. And this went on forever. So you just, you just flat out flat lied out to lied. people? Oh, I lied. <laughs> wow. I flat out lied. I figured I'll still get the whatever it is I'm searching, whatever void I'm trying to fill <laughs> right. by just having people think I'm a stand-up comedian and who goes out and does mm. comedy in New York. Right, right friend of mine was a manager at a restaurant uh, on the Lower East Side, and she was throwing a Christmas party. And she invited the whole school, and she wanted me to do stand-up comedy. And she said, there's going to be band there, there's going to be this and that, and I want you to do stand-up, and I would just love it if you would come. She didn't know that you were lying. No, about she had it. no idea. I was funny enough in interactions. Right, it, it was believable. Yeah, like oh yeah, I could totally. Oh yeah, so she's like, oh, come do, please, please do. So. At that point, I just said, I'd rather you just not be my friend <laughs> and tell you the truth. I've been lying this whole time. I was willing to have her just think I was a piece of shit, than for me to actually get on stage and go through with this. And so I just told her, I said, listen, I am a liar. I, I've i never wow. done stand-up. Please don't make me do this. And she was like, I think you're funny, and I think you're amazing, and I would really love it if you would do this for me. And I was like, fuck, can't you just, like, yell at me and curse me out? So it's like two weeks out. So I said, oh, f fine. And, of course, she tells everybody. So now the whole school, who I've been lying to this whole time, 
It's like, oh, finally. <laughs> so two weeks go by. I still don't do any open mics. I just wrote stuff down and and that was it. It got to the day of I couldn't eat. I couldn't, you know, just yeah. everything. All those feels, right? I get to the place, just sick, just sick to my stomach. I'm seeing everybody. They're so excited. I'm just like, oh, my God, I'm just sick. She goes, when do you want to go on? I'm like, never. She was like, I'll give you time, and you'll go on later. I was like, cool. So later turned into later, turned into later, thinking I'll get the courage. Finally, one of the faculty came up to me, and she goes, look, I'm only here for you. So when the fuck are you going on stage? She's like, when are you going on stage? So I told Paula, I said, look, uh, you just, just get this over with. Just put me on whenever you want. She's like, here's what I'll do. So-and-so's friend is a professional comic that I also booked. I'll have him go on first. You can kind of see how it's done. Ride his wave. And, you know, you'll come out as the new, the newbie just whatever so we go up there's like a band still playing or something and we're b backstage now this is a beautiful place i wish i could remember the name of the place big stage and everything we're back there and i'm talking to this guy and he's like i'm like man it's my first time he's like oh man you'll do great and then she introduces him he goes out and he bombs so hard so hard and it was a type of bomb where you understand exactly why he bombed. It's not like, oh, they just weren't, they you didn't connect. Oh, you're, you, you're saying like you understand why they're bombing, yeah. but you, you ever have one of those where you're watching the bomb and you get why it's bombing, but you can't see what it was that they thought was going to work it, in yes, the first place? Yes, it was one of those. It's, it's, yes, it was one of those. Like, at what, <laughs> po what point did you think that this coming out of your mouth was going to connect with anybody right, in any right, way right. whatsoever? And they hated him. And there was these older ladies. And they they were just disgusted, like traumatized. And I was like, you know what? If I can get them to laugh at anything I do, I think I'll be okay. I said, if nothing I say is funny, I can charm my way into them laughing or liking me based on what they just experienced. Mm -hmm. And he comes off stage. He just goes, that was fun, and walks off. And I'm like... Even before I had a comedy brain, mm -hmm. it let me into, oh, that's why he thought that was okay. Because he's just that type of person. The fact that he went through that and was like, oh, that was fun. Like, oh, you're not on this planet. Like, you're you're one of those people. I was like, okay. But the fact that he just walked off, I was just like, well, look, whatever happens, happens. But it can't be as bad as what right, he just did. Right, right. And if he's able to not jump in front of a bus right now, maybe I'll survive it. So I go out there, I have some, I have my little pieces of paper, and I started with one joke, and it got a laugh. And I started with another joke, and I got a laugh. Mm -hmm. And by the time I was done, they, you know, the wait staff had stopped. I knew once I got the wait staff, I was like, yeah, and, the, man, and my student, my classmates, and especially everybody was like, at that time of night. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah, after yeah, that yeah, much yeah, of yeah. the party is going on or whatever. Yeah, some of the secret in my sauce is. I start with the premise and I try to get people on the premise in the sense of it being relatable, some, something to where I can say the premise and they're already going, uh-huh. So by the time I get to the punchline, it's almost like an easier blow. Right, they're, they're ready, they're waiting for the release. They're waiting for the yeah. release. Uh, and not without knowing it, that's kind of what I was doing there. I forget what the jokes were, but I just remember being stuff that 
they could relate to and they could also be like, yeah, 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 that happened to me too. After that, I um took the train back to the Bronx, but I just remember being like, oh, this is, this is what I'm gonna do. Like, this is it. Whatever high this is, I need this for forever. There were certain moments since then, far a few between that have matched that high, but when those moments happen, it propels you through all the sludge and trials and tribulations that await you in this business. Those are the moments that kind of like propel you through when you're just like, oh, okay, so it's not all roses <laughs> all the time. From that, I did end up doing that class, which was great. And then from there on, it was, uh, that's all she wrote. Acting was no longer my my goal. I decided I'm gonna struggle at one of these things. Which struggle do I wanna do? Cause I'm not doing both. And I decided I'd rather struggle at comedy because as much as I did love acting, I did not love the process in which it took to get to a position where you could do the thing that you wanted to do the most. Mm -hmm. uh, with stand-up, I could think of something right now and immediately go to an open mic right. and do and of course, the of thing. Of course, the downside on, on the acting thing is no matter how good the experience is, it does end and then you're back to scratch again. Yes, yeah, back to scratch. But even just to get the audition, to get considered, are my headshots not up to date? Oh, well, but in this headshot, you had a, you had on this length of hair and you had a mustache and this one got to pay another 600 bucks because I trimmed the mustache. Oh, you got to be taking classes all the time. Oh, you got to be taking workshops. You got to be doing this. It's like, what the hell is going on here? And then, oh, you know, you were great, but uh, your nose is too big or your ears are too small or this, that, and the third. Or, yeah, you really want to be acting and things like this, but you got to take whatever you get. So you're going to be doing these types of roles or you're going to be go out for this audition, even though it's not anything that interests you at all. And with stand-up, it's just like, yeah, you write your shit and then you go and you perform it. Even if it's at an open mic or it's at a bar show with 12 people, it's still essentially what you want to be doing. It may not be the amount of people you want to be doing it in front of or the platform, but it's what you want to be doing. It's not like, in order to do stand-up, first you got to take out the trash and you got to do this, or you're too tall to actually do, you know, there's none of that crap. <laughs> it's like, no, I can just do stand-up as myself. So when you made that decision, where were you in your comedy journey and how was money going? Well, the comedy journey for me was going great because I didn't know know anything. I didn't know what to expect. And I started with a, a decent pop. So I, I moved to New York when I was 25. Started stand-up when I was 26. So I had some life experience. I wasn't like 18 or 19. I wasn't just doing dick jokes. And I was like, I had some sense of like, I could put words together that had some meat to them at least for a 25, 26, 27 year old. So by the time this came around, I was 27, 28. I could formulate jokes more authentically and more well-rounded, but because I was so new to stand-up and because I looked so young, a lot of people were like, who's this kid? Who's this 18 year old with these great jokes and he's so poised and he's, you know, I wasn't getting anything crazy, but it was working itself out. I was making friends and making connections and getting invited to do shows and stuff like that. As far as the money, I wasn't making, you know, I was making whatever. I didn't care. How were you paying the rent? You paying, paying the rent. the rent on comedy at this point, right? Right, no. I was paying the rent on music. So I had been playing drums my whole life. 
And so by the time I had gotten here, I knew two people when I first moved to New York. One was an ex-girlfriend that I didn't want to talk to <laughs> anymore. And the other was a friend of the family who was a very seasoned musician, kind of like a surrogate uncle, if you will. He played organ at my parents' wedding. So when he heard that I was in town, he took me under his wing and was like, I'll look out for you. And so he ended up introducing me to a bunch of musician friends. And from that one meeting, I ended up getting booked for gigs left and right. Like just- Oh man, I didn't know this about you. Yeah, yeah, I ended up getting booked. That's how I paid bills. And simultaneously, one of the musician friends I ended up getting was someone who also had a house all to himself. He was divorced, kids had since moved out, so he just had the house to himself. And it was like, you know, if you need a place, because I needed a place, because the dorm only lasted for so long, so I needed a place. And he was like, you can, you know, have my daughter's old room if you want, whatever. And I was like, hell yeah. So I ended up staying with him, paying peanuts. And so between the music gigs and me paying him peanuts, I was able to feed myself and really just devote all my time into stand-up. That really is how I was able to get good and get things because I was just doing do three or four mics a day every single day full time full stop oh, so every every spot you can hit every spot every mic it was nothing else this was it what places did you like or, or especially dislike at that time there weren't too many places that I didn't like probably because I was just so happy to be in it my favorite mic at the time and I'm not just saying this because it ended up being my home club was Gotham had a mic it was every Thursday. Not only was it free, but they would have snacks, which that was my lunch sometimes. <laughs> you know yeah, what I mean? It yeah. was just like they would have like chips or something. I'm like, I haven't eaten today. Like free soda and free chips. And it was a free mic. And it was every Thursday at five o'clock. And uh, it was a feedback mic. And the way it worked was. Who, it, who, who was uh, running it? Yona Ward Grossman at the time. Okay. I don't know where he is now, but at the time he was running it. And you got five minutes, no matter what, and then seven minutes total. So you could run the full seven, you could do the five, and then get two minutes of feedback or one oh, minute okay, of feedback. Yeah, yeah. And you could pick who you wanted the feedback from. Oh. So Yona always gave feedback to the newbies, which was great. He gave great feedback. And that's where I learned a lot of principles. Don't run the light move the microphone out of the all kinds of stuff really great for new comics it was an amazing place to like learn stuff because you would learn things off of other people's feedback not even just yours that's really cool because you know, I, I want knock anybody doing what they do but you know so many people get lured into throwing down a lot of money on stand-up classes yeah you know Which and I also it's like did, by the way. you know it, it some people pick it up right away some people take a long time to realize there is no substitute or way of learning other than to do it. But there you get the best of both worlds. Yeah. And you didn't have to throw down, you know, hundreds of dollars to find out how to do what you're learning by the act of doing. Yeah, exactly. I came out of a really good class, like a really solid class. After a while, you knew who to pick to give you feedback. Mm -hmm. Mark Norman and Sam Earl and... Even at that time, we all respected each other's jokes. Yeah, it was really great. That was my favorite, Mike. When do you start breaking through and getting regular spots? Um, I came up initially at the comic strip. 
comic strip had the late night. The regular show happens, and then the late night show happens where the comics come on and they do five minutes and just pass the mic, and the crowd can stay or not stay or whatever. They've already paid their check, and so I came up through there, and I and I knew that that was a goal of mine. That was a big deal. This is how dumb I cringe to this day. I cringe, I tell you. I got past that late night. And I remember making a Facebook post like, I just got past that late night and I'll never have to do another open mic ever again. <laughs> I was just like, <laughs> I got such an ass kicking from comics that knew better. It was just like, uh, you dummy. No, no, were they pulling you aside politely or were they just like ripping you off? No, on ripping the post? me and they should have. And I deserved every bit of it. I deserved every bit of it. They were, they were ripped me at open mic, not in a like they had a they had something against me, but they straightened me right, up. Right, right. <laughs> they straightened me up, and I was like, no, duly noted, duly noted. But yeah, the late night at the comic strip was when my first official. Oh, I'm past at a club, somewhat kinda, and I was doing that, and that was amazing and brutal all at the same time. It's late night, so it's like the crowd has already been there. They've seen the quote unquote pros. And now you're going up there trying to prove yourself. And though I did have the jokes where when I got on, they I was coming with my best stuff and doing well. However, depending on how far on the list you were down, determine how many people were actually left in the room by the time you got on stage. Yeah, yeah. There would be 13 people on the list. It was a, uh, it was dreadful. I remember one time I was on stage and it was like maybe two people left. You could hear the squirt bottle as they like were cleaning off the tables in the middle of a punchline. <laughs> that time when the whole show become the, the check spot. Yeah. The, yeah. <laughs> Chairs stacking <laughs> groans from the back. It was rough. And then I'll never say who, but it was one person and we're actually friends and he's, they're actually a very funny comic today. <laughs> but at that time they would go up early in the lineup and just, it was not good. And you would just see a parade of people. Because it would be like, the audience would go, oh, okay, we'll stick around for late night. What is that? And then a couple of people would go up and they'd be like, oh, this is late night? No, thanks. <laughs> and just a parade of people. And just like, fuck. And then you peek in a room and it's like six people left or whatever. And, and then from there, what got me really kind of in the game, because I still didn't get fully passed at the comic strip. Someone asked me if I wanted to do my own show at Gotham in their downstairs room. The problem was at the time, I heard that Sean the Booker did not like when people did shows downstairs. He didn't consider them for shows upstairs. It was like, if you're producing a show downstairs, you're not gonna do a show upstairs. You had to pick and choose. And so a few people told me not to do it. They were like, yo, if you produce there, they're not gonna book you. And I remember thinking two things, one, they're not going to book me right now anyway. I wasn't on the cusp. And I said it because I remember he had seen me prior. I had a good set. And I remember him coming up to me and going, good set. Just keep at it. You know, so that wasn't a your past. That was, yeah. it was just like, all right, keep going. I kind of just made a decision that I'm going to do it. And if if we're able to fill the room and I'm down there destroying I don't care what the rules are. It's not going to hurt me in the long run. But I just kind of said, you know what? If they say, hey, quit doing the show and then you can work here, then fine. But until then, I'll just do the show. So what happened was I started doing the show and we would pack the shows out 
And I would just go up there and I considered it my showcase show every single time. Once a month, any show he did, I did was in preparation for that one show once a month at Gotham and downstairs. After a while, the staff, they were talking, the management, it became undeniable at a certain point to when Sean started coming in and peeking in and seeing me on stage. At one point he said, all right, I'm gonna see how you do. He watched me do a spot downstairs and I knew he was watching me. I saw him come in and he posted up in the back and I said, okay, all right, this is it. I go up, I had a good set, but I ended on a joke I shouldn't have ended on. It wasn't a strong joke. And he was like, didn't love that last joke, but it was a good set. He had me try out upstairs and I tried out upstairs and it went well. And then from there on, it was like, all right, you're in. And I remember that being another moment. And you maintained the show downstairs. I maintained the show. I kept the show. So I was doing both. There would be times I would be doing the show downstairs and I had to run upstairs and do sets. You were doing our show by that point, right? Yeah, I think so. For your own show, were you typically emceeing it? Never emceed it at that show. That was my showcase. We would always get somebody else to emcee it. And then that was my time to like showcase my act. And I remember Sean telling me one day, he said, look, when you're looking to get booked at a club, you got to look at who they book. I want you to look at who I book on my shows. If I book you, I'm taking away one of their spots. So whose spot are you going to take away? Mark Norman, Sam Morrill, you know, whoever. And that stayed in my mind. I was like, and the, from then on, I looked at it that way. And I just was like, I'm coming for your spot. Even if we're friends, in my mind, I was like, I'm coming, I'm coming for that. I want that spot. I'm coming for your spot. And eventually he would have me host. And I did pretty decent. God rest his soul, Angelo Lozada was hosting a, a ton there. And so I had him and he took me under his wing as a mentor. And I learned a lot from him. And so I became a really strong host there as well, which at the time was great because it's more stage time, but also hosting, you get boxed in as a host in other places when you get known as a great host. Sean is great at having me host, but then also having me do spots. But I would host at other clubs and they would be like, oh, you're our host now. And after a while, you're just like. Yeah, it's a problem with that sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Labeled. Yeah, so I had to kind of fall back and have them kind of reimagine me or re-respect me as like. So what do you do? Just stop being available to MC at some of those places? Yeah, 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 yeah. You stop being available as much. And sometimes people go, oh, all right, well, you're not going to be booked here, but that's fine. But then others are like, okay, great. Well, can you do a spot? Well, you do a spot. And eventually you just make your ways and people start booking you for stuff. And they, I've always heard, I always thought it was bullshit at the time. But it was just like, you know, bookers come to you. You don't have to necessarily go to them. But it's kind of how it works. You make the rounds, you get known and doors start opening up. You go where you want it. You earn that right by, you know, just doing consistently good work. That doesn't solve all the problems. Yeah, yeah. But there's no greater strength you can have, you know, in making your case than that. You are, you are presently head writer of... The God's Honest Truth with Charlemagne the God on Comedy Central. So it's and one you got of the, renewed, right? Yes, we've been renewed for a second season. So we're pre we're prepping now for round two. I get to pay rent for another year, as they say. So you're you're now head writer of a Comedy Central show. How did the writing thing come into the mix? Uh, long story short, I was auditioning for a show a long time ago, maybe six years ago, and 
they didn't cast me on the show. It was essentially a show where comedians come on and tell jokes about whatever the topic they throw it up. And I didn't make it. The note I got back was, well, he came in as one type of black guy, but then on the last audition, he was a different type of black guy. I was the same black guy. To this day, I don't know what the hell that means. I think I had on glasses one audition and no glasses the other. And they were like, well, we don't know what he is. You're, you're, you're a very complicated man. I'm complicated. It could be glasses, no glasses. You just don't know what you're going to get with me. So I didn't get the show, but the production company loved my joke so much. But the production company said, if you want, you can come work with us. Michael Cantor, I always shout him out. And as a punch-up guy for the other comics, it'll get you in the door and at least say no more. Yes, what money? And So I did that for... And, and what level of stand-up were you at this point? I mean, were you... I was floundering around. I think maybe I was doing some spots at Gotham, but I wasn't like the main guy. I wasn't like... Did you have your lounge show at that point? I think so. I want to say I did. So this is obviously going to be like another calling card for me. Yeah, this was a, definitely a thing. A credit, as they say. I had auditioned for America's Got Talent, and I had made it to the second round, but I got cut on the back end. Mm-hmm. Not on the show. On the show, it was great, but they cut me on the back end. So I never could use that as an official thing. So this could have been like credit. But besides that, it was more money that I'd ever made during this ever. Now, did the money at any point make you think, well, maybe I got the wrong gig? No. Stand-up was still end-all, be-all. But doing this opened the doors to letting me know that there's other ways of making money using my skills as a stand-up comedian. Time-wise, were there any conflict for what you're trying to do in the clubs? No. We filmed during the day. And I could do whatever shows I was doing at night. It was cool. And it got to the point where the EPs could tell who did my joke based on the type of joke it was and the style. And if it hit, you know, they were like, oh, that's a Charles joke. That's a Charles. And I knew that was a good sign. And the way TV works, the way a lot of things work is you show up, you do your thing, and and if people like you and whatnot, and they like working with you and you do a good job, you just get recommended. Somebody comes asking, hey, you know somebody? Yeah, I know this guy. Bah, 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 bah. So one of the other EPs that I had met, Brian Saracusa, who happened to be there, was doing another show with Charlemagne at the time. This is years ago, not this show. And asked me if I would come in and do the same thing, punch stuff up with the regular writers. And also, I, I said, I call it Charify because they were all white writing staff at the time. And you're doing a show with Charlemagne. You need somebody to come in and say, ah, you wouldn't say that. And so I would do that. But my first week there, one of the writers quit because they got a better gig. And I'm thinking that they were going to hire another real writer and I'd still punch up stuff. And he was like, no, idiot, you're the writer. <laughs> Get in there. And so I had to learn how to properly write full acts of a TV show. And I had to jump in the ocean and just learn how to swim. Can we talk about what show that was? Uh, it was called Uncommon Sense with Charlemagne the God. And it was on MTV at the time. I literally just asked one of the producers, I said, listen, I've never done this before. So I may ask you questions here. And she was like, say no more, I got you. And she, I would write the funny and she would format it properly and add in the TV words that needed to be added in and all that kind of stuff. I really was very grateful for her. Up until that point, the few days that I had known her, she gave off a very friendly, very warm vibe. So I was just like, all right, I'm going to just shoot my shot and tell her. Otherwise, I'm going to just look like a complete asshole or, or you know, fuck up the script or something like that. So, so she really helped me out a lot. And, did, uh, did you have a sense of uh, the rest of the staff? Was, like, was it like, 
oh, there's a bunch of hardened veterans. They're like, ah, the kid, they gave it to the kid. It certainly felt that way. And they were all very kind and warm. I was very lucky in entering into a oh, place nice. that were full of people that were just nice people. And I remember Andrew Goldstein, who's still friends with to this day. He was the head writer at the time. He would be working on all night on the script. And I remember him asking me, hey, do you mind reading this? Tell me if this is funny or tell me this. Is... And I remember that being a big deal to me, that the head writer wants my input on, is this funny, is this good? I was like, I remember that making me feel really good. Yeah, so that's how I started. And from there, just one thing led to another. You just, you know, you show up, do your work, and you keep booking shit. Where you at right now? You happy with things or do you have big things in, in your sights? It's funny because... You always think that you'll get the gig and that'll be like the end all be all. And it's never exactly how you imagine it is. I, I love the gig. Don't get me wrong. That's Stephen Colbert. I love the gig. Thank you so much for hiring. me. He's an executive producer, so he's the boss. But it's also allowed me to learn so much. I always say I never went to school for any of this shit. I went to school for theater, technically. But I never went to school to work in television as a writer. And I never went to school to be a stand-up comedian. So this whole thing has been comedy school or television school for me. I literally just got in and have just been learning and learning and learning along the way as I move up. It's just learn, 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 learn. And it's funny, too, because in between gigs, you would see people, like, panicking, you know, towards the end of the season. I don't know what the next gig is. Or I don't know. To me, it's all been a bonus. So I'm never like, oh, what's the next writing gig? I'm just like, oh, my God, I can't believe I got to do that. And I'm like, back to stand up. You know, it's always just been this extra thing that I've been lucky enough to kind of fall into. But yeah, to answer your question, my next thing is creating my own stuff. I want to create it by credit when a television show comes on the screen, selling television shows and creating my own content. That's really my ultimate goal right now. TV, movies. TV and film uh, in the immediate television, um, just because that's where my network and expertise and was where my world is now. And I kind of know how that world works. I'm familiar with the film world, but television is it's been what my thing for the last six years. That's kind of where I am now. That's the next goal. Now, whether there are things that happens in between here and there, I don't know. But in my mind, that's what I'm prepping for next anything going on that you want to plug literally the only thing i want to plug is social media that's it i'm in the process of building that element up everything else will be promoted there at charles mcb mcb as in boy ee instagram particularly but if you don't have instagram you got twitter that works too but that's where almost anything i've got going on no my space you know what? MySpace backslash backslash Charles McBee. <laughs> but it's part of me that wants wants to feel there's somebody who's like, no, I'm comfortable with this. I'm just staying. I'm here. gonna stay. I'm here. You know what? That happens anytime I see somebody with a Yahoo email. I'm just like, all right. <laughs> you know, I have a Hotmail email. Hotmail baby. I got some great memories with Hotmail. My handle is No Name NYC. This was created so long ago. Like now, you tell yeah, me yeah, where yeah, we yeah, could yeah, find yeah. it. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah, so yeah. it's like, uh, damn it, I'm holding on. Hotmail had a great <laughs> chat thing many moons ago, where I had a lot of great connections with girls that went to other colleges and stuff like that. Yeah, that's a podcast for another time. <laughs> Hotmail is great. Just parenthetically, I'll add that we presently don't have a no-name website. The one that we had had, for a long list of reasons, fallen into disuse. 
but we found out it, it was co-opted by a Chinese porn site. So no name synonymous nice. with both adventurous comedy and Chinese porn. Nice, nice. So I don't mean to brag, but uh, not getting my cut of any of that. That sums up comedy in a nutshell. <laughs> there you go. And I, I have nothing to add. Thanks for being here, man. Thank you. Ah, and that was our conversation with Charles McBee. I think that's a nice place to start. He's an interesting and funny and thoughtful guy. So be sure to check out his page, find him on social media, and see him live if you get a chance. It's always a good show, always a very funny gentleman. Although this is our first episode, it's actually what we're calling a teaser episode. We're going to drop the first batch of episodes. We've, we've got a bunch in the can. We've got a few more that we're going to put together. And then this summer, we're going to release them all in one batch because that's how folks do things nowadays. But in the meantime, so you got a little taste of what we're going to be doing. And just to let you know, when we release the batch, this episode will be included, but all of the episodes will contain a little something we call bonus content. And this might be isolated stories, war stories about shows or being on the road or things of that nature. Might be some music from our house band. Might be mini interviews with friends of ours promoting stuff. But it should be a lot of fun. So we hope you'll come back, keep following us, and we look forward to seeing you with lots more interviews and uh, lots more fun conversation. Thanks for being here. My name is Eric Vetter. Presently speaking to you from lovely Isham Park in beautiful Inwood in uptown Manhattan, New York City. Thank you for choosing No Name NYC Podcast. Hey there. Thank you for sticking around. Uh, this is Eric. I'm in, in the park right now. I don't know where you are, but I, I, I hope the weather is as lovely as it is. Uh, where I am right now. Um, and if you hear basketballs in the background, well, I, I hope you're playing basketball because basketball is life. Uh, at least for me. Anyway, um, uh, so here, here you, you've stuck around and we're going to reward you. I think this is a reward uh, with what we call some bonus content. Now, today the bonus content is going to feature... Uh, a story from Charles McBee talking about when he first hit New York and his first, uh, some of his first acting gigs. Uh, this is one of those like horror stories or war stories, not horror stories, but war stories. Uh, anyone who spends any time pursuing the arts, um, <laughs> we all got battle stories to tell, and uh, this is a very entertaining yarn. Uh, I, I think you'll be cheering for him by the end of it uh and after that we're, we're gonna have uh, a song uh, from james tristan redding now for those of you who are longtime fans of no name uh you know for there was a period of a few years that james tristan redding was part of our house band the summer replacements uh he since uh has moved to nashville and established himself as quite a wonderful uh songwriter and and singer songwriter and performer um, and what we have here uh, is very cool. He shared with us an unreleased album, uh, his next album uh, uh, in rough mixed form. Uh, and we're going to give you a little sneak peek. You can't find this anywhere yet online. Uh, it will be dropping, I believe, later this year. 
Uh, but we love his music. We think you will, too. Uh, and you get a sneak peek at a new song from James Tristan Redding. All of that. But first, our bonus content is sponsored by Word Up Community Bookshop. Word Up Community Bookshop, located at 2113 Amsterdam Avenue. That's the corner of 165th Street and Amsterdam Avenue in Washington Heights. This is a wonderful place. It's a community-based place, and it is the bookshop with a little something extra. Uh, they have a great selection of new and used books, uh, not only in English, but in Spanish and many other languages as well. They also have merchandise from notebooks to T-shirts to tote bags to games, uh, all sorts of cool stuff there. It is largely volunteer-staffed, and uh, they also have programs for young people. Uh, there are artist events, uh, author events. There are writing workshops. So please check them out. Lots of good stuff there. They also have an online bookshop. Do check them up, out at wordupbooks.com. And uh, support independent bookshops. That's always a good thing. So whenever you're in Washington Heights... Uptown New York City. Be sure to drop into Word Up Community Bookshop. Do you back to? Do you oh, know the story I want to? I think you so. About? When I was naked in Brooklyn, uh, <laughs> covered in blood. <laughs> well, don't blow the punch. Oh, sorry. <laughs> well, I always start with that anyway when I tell the story. It's mm -hmm. one of those where you start with the end first, and people go, "What?" So mm -hmm. yeah, I ended up in Brooklyn, half naked, covered in blood. I was living in the Bronx at the time. You know, I'm still dibbling, dabbling in acting. I'm still, you know, I would go on casting.com and stuff like that. And I ended up going on Craigslist because I'm like, oh, well, maybe something's on there. So I go on Craigslist under gigs and I saw somebody was looking for an actor for a short film. So I, I hit him up and I said, hey, you know, uh, I would love to be considered or whatever the case. He said, OK, meet me here. And I met him. I met him at his apartment somewhere in Brooklyn and we read a scene and he said all right you got it you're great and I was like okay cool and he was like now how do you feel about going to the apartment did you suspect anything at the time no it was in the middle of the afternoon I didn't know I didn't know what to expect or not to expect mm -hmm. it was just like come to you know but you knew you were going to an apartment I knew I was going to an apartment um you know I don't know it's, it's one of those things where it's like it's New York you know, I'm a kid fresh off a of farm town and, you know, in in bumfuck. So I'm like, maybe it's part of the whole thing. Yo, you meet at somebody's apartment and read scripts or whatever. And plus, I wasn't like some young starlet or something like that. I was like, I don't right, know, you know, right. it was like whatever. So I do that. He goes, great, you got it. And I was like, cool. And then um, uh, it was like, I'll send you the script. So he emails me the script. And during that time, I had also booked a callback for an off-Broadway show which I was excited about. I was like, you know, I'm starting to book little things here and there. I think I had just done an off-Broadway show prior to that, and it was a really great experience. And so I was I was excited that I got another opportunity to do something like that. It ended up that the callback was on the same day as the film shoot. So I hit the guy up. I said, listen, I got this callback. It's at 6 p.m. I just want to let you know. He's like, all good. We're, we're shooting at like 3 or some shit like that or something. I was like, cool. He's like, you'll be out in no time. I was like, okay, cool. He sends me the script, but the script isn't a long, it's a short scene. So I get there. For some reason, I had a bag with me. I don't remember why. 
but uh, I get there and there's no, there's no crew. There's no, you know, we're at the park right on the Hudson. It's him and his little old school. I remember think, seeing the camera and thinking it was a cool looking camera. It's the old school looking camera thingy. But I just remember going, it's just him and this camera and then this other guy who was an other actor. There wasn't even a sound guy. There was nothing. Him, little camera, and this other guy who was like another actor in the scene. And so he goes, uh, here's the scene. You're walking along. He's going to come and stab you. And then you're going to fall to the ground. And I was like, huh? He's like, you're gonna stab, he's gonna stab you, you're gonna fall to the ground. I'm like, okay. And I'm now I'm thinking to myself, <laughs> I didn't know I was gonna be getting dirty and falling on the ground and stuff. I'm like, I got a thing later, you know, this, that, and the third. He's like, don't worry, I got stuff to clean you up. We'll get you cleaned up, you'll be ready to go. I just took his word for it because I'm I'm so new and done and naive. I'm like, well, maybe he has something somewhere to clean me up. I don't know. Whatever. This could be the next Tarantino for all I know. Right, right. So I go, cool. I do the scene. Stabs me, stabs me. Falls to the ground. He goes, that was great, man. That was great. We're going to do it one more time. You Just one more time. You just lay on the ground. I was like, all right, cool. So I lay on the ground. He goes, action. He goes, all right, now pour blood on him. I'm like, blood? <laughs> Mind you, I didn't have the <laughs> wherewithal to be like, fuck this, blah, 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 blah. Why, why? I'm just like, huh, what? So they start pouring film blood just all over me. <laughs> so I remember him going cut, and I'm like, what the fuck is this? What are you, you didn't say anything. It was like, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. We'll get you, I got you, I got you covered. We'll get, I got you. We just got to do one more take, one more take. And I, now I'm like, I'm already in blood. He said he has me, you know, it's all right. He goes, action, more blood, more blood, more blood. And he's just, he's just dumping blood on me. And I'm like, what the fuck is this? What did this? he stab you with? It was, yeah, it was just a knife. I don't even know what genre of film this was supposed to be. I have, until this day, I don't even know. I've never seen a cut. I don't even know. I don't even remember who this guy was. I don't want to, it's somewhere in the atmosphere. More blood, cut. He's like, man, that was great. That's a rap. It's like a rap. <laughs> I got a thing at six. How do, what, 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 give, give me the stuff to clean myself. I don't know. What, I'm thinking maybe he has a cooler with something. He hands me like a, a, a paper towel. I go, no, I go, what is, I need to get cleaned up now. He goes, he, and he looks at me as if he forgot that he <laughs> told me he would clean me up. Like, he's like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh. And he has me like he like like not even like he had it ready for me. He just literally just looked for something. Try this. Now I'm in like okay, figure some shit out mode. Yeah. Either yeah. I could assault him right here, or I could fig <laughs> I could try and just figure something out. So I'm trying to I take this towel and I'm like, there's no way. This is the type of blood like it it's it sticks it um hardens. So it's not like ketchup or something. It's like real stuff. So. So I go over to a water fountain and, and start trying to wipe myself off. Remember, I told you, there was no film crew. There was no set. I was just a black dude in the park at a water fountain covered in what seemed to be blood. <laughs> There's people at the park. There's mothers with strollers. It's just people there. 
sing me. They're not like going, oh, there's a film going. No, it's just a dude, no shirt on, covered in what seems to be blood, who's dabbing water on a paper towel and trying to wipe himself off. I'm like, this isn't going anywhere because I'm covered in this stuff. And so I turn around and I see the Hudson River behind me. There was a fuck it moment where I rolled up my pants, took off my shoes and socks, took off my shirt and started walking into the river, into the Hudson. I was trying to get the appearance of blood off of me. So there was a like a rock was out of the water that I like perched myself up on that I say like a mermaid, like just perched myself up. I could have sung what part of your world, you know, (laughs) waves crashing. And I start just taking the water and just like trying to like get this stuff off of me. And the director, quote unquote, comes over and he's like, hey bro, I don't think that water's clean. I'm like, no shit, (laughs) dude. And then he goes, we don't have a permit. I think somebody called the police. So, I get out of the water, put my shoes back on, grab whatever I had, and now I'm just like, I leave. And it just so happened that the park was near where my dormitory was when I was living there for the acting school. And it just so happened that because it's a dormitory, you could end up getting a job there and working there and living there for free. And I knew that my friend Bobby, I just happened to know that he was an RA. So I'm calling him as I'm walking through Brooklyn and he's not answering the phone. He's not answering his texts, but I I get to the place and I'm standing in the street and I see his window and I'm calling him from the street. Like Bobby, like hoping he would not no Bobby, nothing. Mind you, it's a dorm with first year students. So they're all coming out and seeing me half naked, covered in (laughs) blood and soot and whatever in the middle of the street. And they're like, what the hell is is this my New York moment that I've been hearing so much about? Is this happening right now? And so they're kind of like seeing what's going on. I'm calling, calling, nothing's happening. And I'm very discouraged and I'm very pissed off and I'm very like deflated. I just figure I'm gonna just go home, go home and forget this ever happened. And right at that moment, the sky got really dark in minutes. I mean, I'm talking like minutes. I felt a drop and another drop, and then it started raining, and then it was just like a downpour. And it was the summer, so it was a warm rain. Mm -hmm. So I'm in the middle of the street getting rained on, and I'm like, well, I'm still covered in blood. I might as well try and get this crap off of me. So I'm just like showering. I'm scrubbing my body Uh... in the middle of the street in the rain. There was an awning on the building. And so now people are coming under the awning just to get out of the rain. <laughs> There's an audience that are just watching me do this. And somebody, I literally heard somebody go, I think he's on drugs. It was just like, I, I'm in this moment. I don't know it's because I didn't know these people. I'm not at home. I'm not in Ohio, so I don't care. I don't know these people. I'm just like, whatever. Just I just want to get this crap off of me. And then I go under the awning just to get out of the rain. Mm. And I just see everybody just move to the other side. Like they wanted no parts of what was coming at them. Coming at them. They're just like, nope. It's the equivalent of being on the train, the one car that has all the seats empty, yeah, yeah. but there's a guy in there. And you're like, ah, do I, what do I do? So yeah, they stood there 
And I'm standing there and eventually I just hear somebody go, Charles. <laughs> and it was Bobby. And I looked at my watch and I was like, I think I can make it. I was like, Bobby, I don't have time to explain. I need to go to the flight department right now. I need clothes. I need blah, 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 blah. He's like, all right. He takes me up to his place. I get clothes. I think I might have kept the pants, but I changed shirts. This, then the third. And I just hauled ass out of there, ran to the train, ran to the audition. I get on the elevator and I'm hauling ass because now it's like 5.59. One thing that they drilled into you, don't show up late to on set. You don't show up late. Professionalism is everything. So I'm hauling ass and I fall out of the elevator. It's right on time. And the producer, he sees me. He's like, oh, hey, you made it. Great. And he goes, uh, come on in. <laughs> and I'm, uh, uh, I'm, I'm praying maybe there's somebody else. You know, maybe I get like two minutes to like right, catch my breath. Right. Now I'm like, I'm in there. I'm out of breath, but I'm trying to keep my composure. And I don't want to say, hey, can I have a minute? You know, I'm just like, whatever. And he's like, all right, cool. You know, here's the director. Here's this person. Here's that person. They're all standing there. And they're like, all right, so did you get to sing? I was like, yeah, I got to sing. He's like, okay. You know, just a little little note. Just remember, your character has just gone through a very traumatic experience. <laughs> and I was like, got it. Yeah, I think I'm good. I think we're all right. And I did it. But I think it was the fact that I was so winded. I was so traumatized from the experience that I had too much of that to be nervous or second guess any choices I made with the audition. It was literally like, blah, 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 blah. Why, there why, was why? no, I had no care to second guess anything that I was doing or anything. I was just like, here you go. Somewhere okay. there's footage. It has to be somewhere. And I I just, I don't know the name of the the piece. I, I don't know anything. I just have long lost that memory until I tell it on stage. What was crazy, it was years before I even started doing that on stage. That's how crazy, I always say, this is how crazy New York is. I never even thought to make that material. Like, it was just some shit that happened to me. It wasn't until, funny enough, I told Paula that story. We were out randomly. I mean, we were talking, because she's an act, you know, actor too, and I was just talking about shit gigs or whatever. Oh, yeah, this one time. Oh, yeah. Bah, 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 bah. And she's like, no. What? And I'm like, yeah. And then I was yelling at Bobby, and I'm covered in blood, and it was raining. And she's just like on the floor just hyperventilating oh yeah, yeah, like, yeah oh man okay maybe i should tell the I, story I, I think the first time i heard that story i may be wrong but i think it was at a, a show we did at qed but i remember sitting in the audience and i think you basically told that story as your entire spot and i didn't want to get up and, and bring somebody else up i just <laughs> wanted to keep listening for a while or at least catch my breath <laughs> Five foot nothing, leather for skin County line, furthest he's ever been Diesel engine, big cloud of dust Live and die by the land Ain't no back talk, do all your chores One turned seven, other one's four Proud of teaching, raising them up, fine as anyone can. Soil is rich, 
pockets are empty, houses falling apart. Work the field, yield will be plenty in the home and the heart. Nothing comes easy, but there's no guarantee. Still, he's planting the seeds. And that, that is, again, that is James Tristan Redding, uh, cut from his, his as-yet-to-be-released album. Uh, when that gets closer to actually have, when it has a release date, we'll let you know about that and where to check him out and where to buy the music. Uh, and again, our, our thanks to this episode's guest, our first podcast guest, Charles McBee. Uh, thanks for the great conversation and the great stories. Uh, and to all of you. Thank you for hanging out, not only listening to the conversation, but hanging out for the bonus content. We, we think we're going to have some fun with this. Uh, we hope you enjoy it and uh, hope to see you in person sooner than later. And uh, that's it. Keep listening. No Name NYC Podcast. 
Uh, lots more fun to come. Thanks for hanging out. I'm Eric Vetter.